Brother John. Thank you. You did an awesome job. Okay. Well, um, it has been my pleasure to teach you guys these last couple of days. I'm really loud. I'm just normally loud, but that's even more. A um, couple things about what you see over here on the table. Uh, first off, you got your note packet over there. And then there are three different things that I brought for you guys to keep. Um, you can take them. You can take as many as you'd like. Don't take the whole stack, please. we got to share. But other than that, you can have as many as you want. And if you need to know where to get them from, come see me. First one here, this is kind of a preempting Pastor Dave because he gets to read my notes before he teaches and sometimes he steals from me. Um, but this is preempting him. This is talking about evolution. Uh, so this is a little flyer you can take. Uh, it's got some points about evolution, some of the weaknesses. You can take as many of these as you want. The other one is uh, this one that I brought the first time, which is the proofthatgodexists.org website. Um, this is a pretty cool website if you want to send a non-believer there. Uh, if any of you have gone on it, what it does is it gives you a series of questions. Um, and you can click on them and you can say, do you know that there's truth? Is there no truth? Is there? And it walks you through how to get to the gospel um, using the presuppositional method. So those are free as well. Take those. And then the last one, and this is one that I found that I'm just, I love. It's these little, little rectangular cards. And I got enough for everybody to take one or two of each. Um, each color is a different religion, different worldview, and what it does is it walks you through how to do presuppositional apologetics with those worldviews using their own words, okay? So that may be like, you're like, okay, that kind of is just words out there in the ether, but when we do it tonight, you're going to see this is very, very powerful, okay? We're not taking the Bible and setting it next to their worldview and trying to say, see, the Bible says this and yours says that. We're just simply saying, take what they say, right, and use that against themselves because they have built it on a faulty foundation. If they don't have it built on the Lord, it's a faulty foundation. So on there, it has a list of things I love, especially like the Mormon one here. At the very bottom, it has all of their verses that they use from the Book of Mormon, Doctrines and Covenants and stuff like that. And then on the back has like a plan of salvation that you could share, and then there's some verses for you to use as well. So it's a really cool little resource um, that I highly, highly recommend. So um, I, don't, I don't think these are what you would give out, but it's more so that you would be able to use them. But however the Lord puts it on your heart, go ahead and do that. All right, so we had some homework last week, or two weeks ago. Um, I gave you guys a sheet that uh, had a whole bunch of statements that you were supposed to use the law of non-contradiction on. Um, and we started with the statement, there are no absolutes. 
Well, that's an absolute statement. Are you absolutely sure? Um, and then we walked through a few more. Were there any that gave you guys any trouble for those of you that did the homework? Was there, were there any that you had issue with? Or you thought, I don't quite get this. Bueller, Bueller. Um, okay, yes. Empiricism ones, okay. So if you have your uh, notes there, it's on the second page. Science is the best or only way to determine truth. What's wrong with that? What scientific theory, what scientific test did you use to prove that sentence is true? You didn't. You just said it, right? So by its own criteria, it's false. Science doesn't need philosophy. <laughs> you, to say you don't need philosophy is actually to do philosophy. So you've just self-defeated yourself. We can't know anything apart from experience. So how exactly did you experience that statement? Okay. I mean, you just ask the statement to meet its own criteria. What experience did you do with that statement to make that true? All right. Um, all knowledge is confined to the realm of experience. Again, have you experienced that today? Um, I only believe in science. Okay. What experiment did you believe, use to come to that conclusion? Apart from mathematical equations, we can't know anything absolutely. What mathematical equation did you use to prove that statement? Okay, so what they're doing is it's this, it's overreach is what it is. And you're going to see this a lot. It's actually a worldview called scientism, which is science is the only way to have real knowledge. Okay, think Sheldon Cooper from Big Bang Theory. That's, that's the person, okay? Um, it, it's just all science all the time. And as soon as you poke any kind of a hole in that, scientism crumbles. But that's what's being taught in our public schools. That's what a lot of our, all of, our, all of our colleges are teaching in one way, shape, or form, which is only what we can prove with science. The problem is you can't prove that, but you're assuming it. And as soon as you assume it, you now have contradicted yourself. Okay? Any other ones that you had questions on? Yeah. Do I have any more? I can get you a lot more, Jonas. And you know where I live, and I know where you live, so we'll, we'll get to that. Let's do logical fallacies on page three. So um, the first one, either God exists or evil exists. You can't have both. Anybody know what fallacy that is? This one was really easy because it had the name of the fallacy in the sentence. Either or, okay? Or a complex question, okay? It's like, when did you stop beating your wife? You can't answer that. Yesterday, never, oh, right? So it's the same kind of thing here. Either God exists or evil exists. You can't have it both ways. Well, we've limited it to two possible answers. Could there be a third? Could there be a fourth answer? Yes, all right? Number two, all Christians are hypocrites. Just look at Jim Baker. What's that? Yeah, but we're looking for the name of the fallacy. So you, you, you described what the fallacy does, but what's the name of the fallacy? Ad hominem? No. It would be if it said Jim Baker, if you attacked Jim Baker because he was a Christian because of his failings, it would be ad hominem. It's close. It's close to an ad hominem. This is what we call an a priorism or a hasty generalization. Okay? This is where you say, that person did it, so everybody did it. All right? It's a really simple way of saying, that guy did, you all did. All right? So that, that's, a, that's a pretty pretty interesting one. And again, just because I don't see it as an ad hominem, but you did, doesn't mean it's wrong. Because remember, we, I just talked about how everything has to be consistent and there's truth. With logical fallacies, there might be more than one option, okay? So I think mine's truer, but, you know, I'm just the teacher and I have the microphone, so there you go. Number three, 
Most scholars reject natural arguments for God's existence. Most scholars is the key point there. That's a bandwagon or an ad populum. Okay, it's basically saying, well, the scholars all believe it, so we're going to, and that might even be like an appeal to elite, like an elitist argument. All right? Another one, you are defending the existence of God because you already believe him, not because you're searching for truth. You already believe there was a God, so now you're looking at all the evidence, and you're, this is called the genetic fallacy. Okay? It's where your belief came from that makes it what it is, as opposed to whether it's true or not. Okay? Just because I believe in gravity and I never did the equations and the math to figure it out doesn't mean that my belief in gravity is not true. All right? So they would say, well, you already believed that, so therefore it can't be true. All right? that, that argument wouldn't work because an atheist who already believes there's no God and looks for evidence that there is no God is the same issue. Number five, Christianity is so medieval when people don't have a scientific understanding like we do now. Nope, ad hominem would be a specific name. Okay, this is a little different one. This is chronological snobbery, right? This is saying, oh, old people, you know, this, they believed it back in the day, so it can't be true. Some say our belief in Christ's second coming is sensationalism. Well, I think the Bible is pretty sensational. That's called equivocation. They changed the definition of sensational right in the middle. My mom got it right, so, you know, there you go. But I heard you didn't have your homework done until today. That's what I... Oh, yesterday. All right. It's okay. Other people didn't do their homework. I won't say any names, Jenny. All right. Um, number eight. <laughs> I will not commit the act because it is wrong. I know it's wrong because my conscience tells me my conscience tells me because it's wrong. Circular reasoning. Is that what you just said? Yes. Nice. The picture of Jim's old TV set goes out of focus. Jim goes over and strikes it on the side. The picture goes back into focus. Jim tells that hitting the TV fixed it. This is called a post hoc. Ergo, prompter hoc, prompter hoc. Okay? It means after it, therefore because of it. Right? Um, and we do this all the time. This is where something happens and we go, oh, see, that caused it when in actuality it just happened at the same time. And then last one, sodium and chloride are dangerous to humans. Therefore, any combination of sodium and chloride will be dangerous to humans. This is called composition. All right? This is where you take two things and you say, well, if you put these two things together, they must be the same as those two things. All right? We also do the same thing, which is division, which is we say, all people are like this, so these two must be like that. Um, so that's just another logical fallacy. Okay, so interesting. Some people really enjoy those. Others, not so much. The key here is that you can smell the fishiness. Okay? You can detect that there's something wrong and that you need to go, eh, wait a second, something's not right here. All right, any questions on that or what we've covered so far? There are no bad questions. All right. So now what we're going to do, so we've done the groundwork. Now we're putting it together. So tonight is going to be one part apologetic method and one part kind of uh, worldview summary, comparative religion, kind of a little bit of everything, kind of sprinkled in. So there's going to be a lot here. Some of this you might go, eh, you know, I don't really know what I need to write down. You can just listen. Um, I've left a lot of blanks on here, so there's places to write. Um, and then, like I said, you got the little flyer things that you can take. I've also put a bunch of books over here that I've read. Um, I think I've read all but one of them over there. And the, other, the reason is because that one was on my shelf and I forgot I had it. The problem when you got a couple hundred books, and I'm a bit of a bookaholic. So um, that having been said, if you're interested in any of those books, um, I, can, I can show you where to get them from. I'll even be willing to loan those to you. I don't think I'm using any of those for school. 
this year, but they are ones that I have dog-eared and, and messed with. Um, if you have any Mormons in your life, whether they're relatives or you have a neighbor or something like that, I've got a couple of really good books. The one I would recommend the most is called One Nation Under Gods uh, by Richard Ibanez. Uh, that's a really great book. Not only does it deal with the history of the Mormon church, it walks through their theology in a way that is like a novel. It reads like a storybook. So it's really, really good, including he got some in, like inside the temple pictures of some of their, their documents that were actually drawn by Joseph Smith to see how he tried to interpret hieroglyphics, which he did wrongly. And so it's, some stuff in there is pretty amazing. Um, and the more you dig into Mormonism, the more you see it's really a blind faith religion. They, they're just going to believe because they believe. They'd rather than not believe, okay? And so really good books, um, and I'll, I'll be here afterwards and I can answer any questions on those books, okay? All right, so why are we doing apologetics? We're told to by God. It's pretty simple, right? First Peter 3.15, have an answer. Have a verbal answer. Be able to defend the hope that is in you. So that's very key. Now, I was thinking about this, and I was like, you know, this whole apologetics thing, Right? If I'm a college student, I'm going, someone going into college this year, or if I'm you know, uh, around a lot of non-believers, um, or if you know, I have a couple non-believer co-workers, whatever it is, sometimes you kind of feel that bent like, okay, I'm going to be ready for my college professor, or I'm going to be ready for this situation, or my teacher, or whatever it is. You kind of feel that apologetics kind of juices flowing, and you're like, I want it. But other times, we go, really? I'm not really going to have, I don't feel comfortable sharing. I don't feel, what we're doing with this apologetic is not only to get you comfortable with sharing potentially, but it's more so that when you are helping other believers, you can also encourage them as well. And I see that today in our lecture is that, you know, all parents are apologetics, teachers, to their kids, okay? And whether you have kids now or you're planning on having kids in the future or you have kids that are on their way out the door, you are still an apologetics teacher, because your kids are going to come to you with, what about this, right? What about that? And, you know, anybody who has kids under the age of 10, you've had crazy questions that you had never really thought about. This is a way to be able to answer those questions and have a framework so that when those questions come along, you don't just go, oh, wow, I don't know. My faith gets rocked. You're not going to let that happen, okay? By knowing that our bedrock is sound, and it is the only bedrock to build on. That idea that our worldview is the only one that works is a way to help you with your doubts as well. Okay, so that's what we're trying to do here. Not only are we encouraging you guys to get out and teach and, and, and evangelize, but also be ready to, for that kind of in, that not really expected teaching when you're talking to a fellow believer or a child or something like that. All right, heard a quote this week and I really liked it. Our job is to close the mouths of the unbelievers, it's the Holy Spirit's job to open the heart, right? So we've got to recognize that it's not our job to change their hearts. It's our job to point them to the Lord. And sometimes that means we need to close their mouth, okay? Um, and that, that is simply silence them. Stand up for what the Lord teaches and point them back to Him. A lot of times they're so caught up in rebutting you and saying all these different things that they don't have a chance to stop and go, wow, that still small voice in my heart is pulling me towards Him, okay? All right. So, we're going to put it all together today. First thing we're going to do is we're going to do a quick review. No neutral ground, okay? That means first thing we start with is everybody has a worldview, right? So we talked about the very first day. There's nobody out there that doesn't have a worldview. So the first thing you do is you say, I have my worldview, you have your worldview. 
don't give up your worldview. Right? I talked about how it would be like a, a, a soldier, a knight giving up his sword because the guy he's getting ready to fight doesn't believe in swords. Okay? We don't do that. We, we introduce them to the sword. Right? So that's what we do. And as an apologist, as a believer, we can't say, well, let's just imagine there's no God because you've just now entered their worldview. You've got on their plane to Chicago. You're going to end up in Chicago. No offense to Chicago. Okay? I just picked a random city. Right? We're trying to get them to go to Los Angeles, but they end up in Chicago while well, you got on the wrong plane. Same thing here. If we enter their worldview and we say, there is no God, let's work from there, we're going to end up at that conclusion. Because ultimately, when we enter their worldview, who is God? They are. We give them evidence, they decide, eh, I don't really like that evidence, because they are God in their worldview. We don't enter in and we don't fan the flames of their idolatry. Okay? Secondly, like I said, worldviews, we talked about those, we'll review those in a minute. Uh, all evidence is interpreted. Okay? That means that uh, we all have the same evidence. Okay? Pastor Dave's going to show you this when he's talking about the book of Genesis. He's going to say, here's the scientific evidence. These people say it's millions of years, these people say 6,000 years. It's evidence. It doesn't change. Okay? And actually, that's a logical fallacy. If you say, well, the evidence says this, it's the logical fallacy of reification, which is saying evidence has a voice. It has a saying something. All evidence is interpreted. Right? It all depends on how you interpret it. Okay? Worldviews are everywhere. Contradictions equal not true. We touched on that a little bit last time. If it contradicts itself, if it cannot meet its own requirements, it is false. And that's a very key thing. And I love that this is the way we see the world because everybody agrees with this. Okay? You can't have it be that Barack Obama is our president and Barack Obama is not our president. One's right, one's wrong. Okay? You can't have it be both. Because if it's both, it's neither, and then your mind explodes because it's all these random whatevers. So contradictions equal not true. And we're going to see that in our worldviews today. And there are some blatant contradictions. And I think, I believe all worldviews, and I think the Bible supports this, all worldviews are based on contradictions if they're not based on God's word. All right? And that's what we see right from Romans chapter 1. Their minds are futile, right? Their minds are foolish. That doesn't mean stupid. Some of these atheists are smarter than us. The difference is, is that they're futile. They're, they're spinning their wheels. Okay? They got a really fast car, but they're driving down the wrong freeway. All right? Then last one, don't answer, but answer. And that's what we talked about a little bit last time, which is we don't go and enter their worldview. All right? We um, hold on to ours. That's our foundation. But then every once in a while, we let their worldview go to its logical conclusion, and we show the futility of it. We show the problem with it. So those are kind of our basics there. So tonight, put it all together. When I first heard of presuppositional apologetics, I kind of felt like it was like a situation that I had when I was coaching a mock trial team. Um, I had this student, his name was Raul, um, who is now a lawyer. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I messaged him the other day and I just said, hey, you remember when we were doing mock trial and we went down to Oregon City and we did the mock trial competition? Do you remember how you tried to do a pre-trial motion? And I asked him about it and he said, oh yeah. And then he literally wrote the longest message I've gotten on Facebook citing the case law and all the different things that he remembered from that court case. This was, he was a sophomore. He's now in law school. He's getting, working on his, he passed the bar and he's doing all that stuff and whatever that's coming his way. So he's way down the road and yet he goes, oh yeah, that was 12C-1 of the judicial code of the civil, I was just like, Whoa. I typed him back, you should be a lawyer. <laughs> so he is. 
he's in the process. But what happened was Raul, and we were going over the mock trial competition paperwork, and Raul found a problem. It was a lawsuit between a person and a, um, like an amusement park. And what had happened was the person's kid had gotten into the amusement park in the middle of the night and fell off of the, whatever, rolling thunder or whatever that, whatever that was and died. So they sued and said, hey, it was too easy for my kid to get in, and that was the court case, right? And so the person who was bringing the suit was not a parent, it was somebody else. And so he said, they don't have standing to sue, right? They weren't hurt by what happened. They're not directly involved. And so he moved before the court, in the mock trial, if you've ever seen this, it's very formal, there's specific rules, you have time limits. He stood up before to the judge and said, hey judge, I'd like to make a pretrial movement, which you can't do in mock trial. But the judge didn't know that because he was just a lawyer who was filling in as the judge. And so Raul laid out his case and he was right, absolutely right. And the judge said, well, we all got dressed up for this. We might as well go ahead and do it. And then he went ahead and did the case. Now the problem was Raul had been dealing with that, all that research to show that the case had no standing to sue. He wasn't ready for the court case that he had to do two minutes later. And so for me, when I looked at presuppositional apologetics at first, I thought, well, this is great. We can debate worldviews, but aren't they just going to say, well, my worldview says this, your worldview says that. And I go, okay. And then we have to debate the evidence, right? Wrong. Absolutely wrong. I was 100% wrong when I first saw this about four years ago. And in the last two years, I've been digging into this. And the, the truth of the matter is, evidences are great. Right? Some of you have asked me about, you know, what do you think about William Lane Craig or Greg Kokel or Norman Geisler or Lee Strobel or Jay Warner Wallace, a bunch of big name uh, apologists. And I say, I love them. Don't throw them out because I say we're going to argue from our worldview. Those are great for us. But when you bring the evidence before a non-believer and you set it there and say, evaluate the evidence, they're going to evaluate from their worldview. They're going to get on their plane to Chicago and end up in Chicago no matter what evidence you lay out. And so this apologetic method doesn't let them off the hook. It says, okay, but go to your worldview. What does your worldview say? Does it account for all of this information? And the answer is it doesn't. And so this is not a discussion stopper, but it's the one we've got to continually go back to. Because they will say things like, that's not fair that God did so-and-so. And you go, you're an evolved pond scum. What is fair? Right? What is fair? Well, it's not just. Who cares? So what? So what? Right? Who cares? Because you are just chemicals fizzing. And what a chemical does to another chemical, you know, who cares? Take two pop bottles, okay, you got Dr. Pepper Mountain Dew, and you shake them up, and you set them next to each other, and you go, bad Mountain Dew. Don't do that. What? It makes no sense. But in the atheistic worldview, we are chemicals fizzing. We are pond scum that has evolved to now be bipedal. I heard one guy call us bipedal protoplasm. That's what we are. And if we're bipedal protoplasm, we believe in survival of the fittest, I have every right to kill anybody who I can kill because I'm fitter than you are. And maybe you're fitter than me and then I die, right? What's the point? So what? So they've used these words to now fit our worldview but they have no foundation in their worldview, okay? That'll make more sense as we go through. So, um, all right, I think we're caught up there. Let's go to the next one. Okay, so quickly reviewing. There's gonna be a lot of review in this, but I'm also gonna expand upon it. 
The first one is monism. Okay, this is what we talked about first. All is one. Very similar to Hinduism. Uh, we'll talk about this in a second and get digger, dig into it a little bit. Uh, dualism, spirit and matter. Okay, they believed in both stuff and then non-stuff. Okay, um, Plato is a big one on that. Materialism, matter is all there is. And then pragmatism, what works, we can't know. Now, this last one here, I'm not going to spend some time refuting. This is kind of the... The pragmatism, skepticism is kind of the last resort, all right? When you've destroyed materialism, which is what most people are, except for the religious groups, I'll show you where they fit on this spectrum, they're going to go to pragmatism and just go, well, we don't know. Well, but the problem is you're acting like you know whenever you make a value claim. So there's an inherent fallacy right there in that you claim values, but then you say there's no way that we can know. Well, it can't be both. We can't not know and know at the same time. So there's the fallacy right there. Okay, so this is where we're going to go with this. We're going to start with monism, all right? So here are some basic uh, ideas. I'm going to walk to this side without it hitting me in the face. So remember, what we need to do is we need to make sure we keep them talking. One apologist said, keep them talking. They will provide the rope in which they hang themselves. Okay, now obviously this is a metaphor. We don't actually expect them to die, all right? But the idea here is simply let them keep talking. Because the further they get into their worldview analysis, they're going to continue to hand you, they're going to hand you the rope by which you're going to say, listen, your, your worldview makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. And our worldviews make no sense if they're not set on Christ. Okay? So here's what we got. Hinduism. Everything is an illusion. All right? Mara. Everything is an illusion. If everything's an illusion, right, how do you know? How does anyone know? And if everything's an illusion and we're all tricked into this illusion, so what? Right? If we're all in the illusion and we're all whatever, what does it matter? Where, what's the point in all of this, right? So these questions, how do you know and so what? This is a very simple way to show the problems in their worldview. If we're all illusory, okay, and the only thing that's real is the spirit realm, and we just got to get in line with that, but if it's all an illusion, how do I know I'm not already in the spirit realm in what's called moksha, or if you're a Buddhist, nirvana, not the band from Seattle, right? If I'm already in that, how would I even know? Because guess what? It's all the same. If everything is a part of what's called Brahman, then I'm already in Brahman. I'm already in moksha. I'm already in nirvana, baby. Because guess what? It's all an illusion anyways, all right? One of the bigger problems, too, we see later on with Hinduism and uh, Buddhism is that they sort of deny the soul, but yet they believe in karma. See the problem there? Right? So you believe that what you do in this life goes on to the next life, but it's not you. It kind of is you. It's a little bit of you. It's kind of a shadow of you, but it's not really you. So guess what? Pfft, do whatever you want. Who cares if you come back as a dung beetle, right? Because guess what? You are... Not you. You're someone else. So again, so what? How do you know? Where do you get it from? All right? So we'll come back to this in a second because I'm going to talk about Hinduism a little bit more. Uh, next one we see is dualism. Dualism. Most famous adherent for this is Plato. And what Plato teaches is that there are forms, there are spiritual things out there somewhere, and then there are physical things. 
okay? And I talked a little bit about Plato's allegory of the cave, which I love teaching to my students because it's the matrix, and I get to talk about the matrix and all of that, um, that there's a really real, and then there's the, the, the illusion that we're in, okay? Plato believes that these forms control the, the, the layout of the world. So there's a form out there of duckness, right? There's a form out there of two-ness and humanness, right? So if I go up here and I write the number two on here, and I go, see, there's two, and you guys go, yep, I remember that. That was preschool, baby. And I go up and I erase it, and I go, oh, two's gone. We know two's still there, right? So if I go around and I'm like, I hate twos, and I destroy every single written down two, is two still there? Yes. Two still exists. And so that's what Plato's argument is, is he's saying there is two-ness, and there's three-ness, there's humanness, there's duckness, right? And he says all of these things out there in the ether or wherever help determine what is here. So Plato's famous student, Aristotle, came along and said, how do you know? How do you know that, Plato? Plato goes, well, I don't actually know. Now, Plato's really smart, one of the most intelligent people ever. And he said, I don't know. But let me tell you a story. Oh, wait a second. The most brilliant philosopher of his time trying to explain his worldview says, I need to make up a story to make sense of something I can't prove because I can't prove it. And since I can't prove it, it probably isn't there, but I think it is. So here's my story. And he says, it's like, it's kind of like uh, an actor in a play having different roles, but yet the same, and just, he just can't explain it. So the problem with the forms and the reality for Plato is how do they interact? We don't know. There's no way to know. So then you go, so what? So what? So what if there's a physical and there's a spiritual form thing? What is that? How does that affect anything? Well, it's just the way the world is and it's how it's set up. Okay, so what do I do with that? Well, actually, you do nothing. Because eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you're dead. And you'll be in the form of whatever you turn into when you die. Worm food, right? So for Plato, the simple thing is, so what? Now, most of the time, there's not going to be much in the way of Platonists anywhere around us, okay? Monists, you might run into. Platonists, probably not. So we get to our next one, which is materialism, okay? Matter is all there is. So here are the questions. Again, let them keep talking. Let them keep talking. If matter is all there is, everything in existence must be solely material. How do you know? Have you seen all of existence? You haven't. Okay? But that's kind of like, all right, now come on, no one can see the entire universe. All right. Okay. Can you think of one single thing that is not matter that we know exists? Love. Uh, okay, well, that one. How about logic? Can we time? Logic, time, numbers, mathematics. Some of us would really hope mathematics didn't exist. Well, at least we didn't when we were in high school, right? If matter is all there is, then how do you know that logic works? Well, it does. So then there is something outside of matter. Yeah, but logic just explains how matter works. That's just a definition. You haven't explained how logic, which is not something that can be measured, not something you can touch, not something that you can empirically verify, is yet what you use to empirically verify that there is matter. 
See the inherent problem here? Is that you can't have it both ways. You can't say, here's my logical explanation for why there is only matter. Well, you just use something that is not matter. So you see now, those simple little phrases I gave you guys, if you start to get your mind wrapped around these, you see, well, we got some issues here. All right? So, what about ethics here? Where do we get right and wrong for a materialist? Well, they just evolved that way. Christopher Hitchens, very famous atheist, who now knows for sure there's a God because he passed away a few years ago. I heard some rumors that he was on the verge of becoming a believer. This was the guy that had brain cancer, and he said, hey, you know what, if I become a believer late in my life, just know that the cancer has eaten into my brain far enough that I am now insane. That's how much he hated God. Ironically, his brother is a crazy good apologist, and they came from the same family. So I really pray that Chris Richards did come a believer at the end. He said, you know what, evolution, we've just evolved to this point of judgment. So here's the problem. Christopher Hitchens, he would definitely be mad at Adolf Hitler. He would definitely be mad at Genghis Khan. He would definitely be mad at, and just keep going all throughout history, but if ethics evolve, we have no right to judge anybody that came before us because ethics are still evolving. If that's the case, then guess what? Hitler did nothing wrong. Okay, we say, okay, well, but there's just a general idea of what's right for society. Who says? Who decides? Now, if you say it's majority rules, guess what? MLK was wrong. MLK was a bad guy. He was immoral, right? Because he was going, he was bucking the trend in Birmingham, Alabama, right? So are we ready to say Martin Luther King did the wrong thing? We're not, because we know that there is a right and there is a wrong, and even if the majority, even if 99%, agrees to it, it doesn't make it right. Well, uh, the government decides, well, the government, that's even a worse argument, right? The government makes a rule, does that represent anything but the elite or whoever's in the office or the waves of wherever we're at? I mean, has the government ever made a bad rule? Right? Maybe once or twice today, okay? So, again, so what? How do you know? You can decimate these worldviews with simply asking those questions. How do you know that matter is all there is? So what if matter is all there is? If there's no ethics, then I can do whatever I want. Right? If matter is all there is and there is no right and wrong, give me your wallet. Right? As soon as I try to take your wallet, now there's a right and wrong. Atheists cannot live by their worldview. They can't do it. They will say, oh, I'm going to be consistent, because if they're consistent, they would not go to a single funeral. Because humans are just evolved animals. We don't have, I mean, maybe if you have little kids, you might have, you know, a little funeral for the goldfish that you put in the toilet. Do people still do that? I don't know. Maybe. Okay, my kids have never had a goldfish, so I don't know. All right? Do we have a big, uh, you know, do we have the, uh, the, the marching band and the 21-gun salute for Goldie? We don't. Why? It's just a fish. Right? Did, you know, I, I ran over a squirrel the other day. Did we stop and have a big memorial service? No, but we have memorial services for each other. Why? We're just matter. We're just evolved apes. But yet, a non-believer will wail and mourn for a friend who dies. Because there's value there that doesn't fit with their worldview. Okay? So now, this is where a lot of times we will get people that will attack what Christians believe. And I see there's three real 
popular attacks when it comes to Christianity. So occasionally we are going to have to be able to defend what we stand for. Because what does the Bible say? The Bible says God will not contradict himself. He does not change. So if God says this is the way it is and then we see opposite of that, one, the atheist is going to use that. All right? Two, sometimes that, that, that nagging bit of doubt will use that as well when we're having a rough day. The uh, ancient uh, church fathers used to call this the dark night of the soul when you're really doubting what you believe. And this is what the enemy will use, right? They'll bring up, well, what about this? Or what about that? Or what about that? And so we need to be able to have an answer. And this is where evidential apologetics and a lot of the apologetics that we see out in the world can come in. Because when a non-Christian says, all right, great, you've shown my worldview doesn't work, okay, I'm just, a, I'm just evolved pond scum, well, let's go into your worldview and look at the contradiction there. Because if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander, right? So if we do it to them, they're going to do it right back to us, so we need to be prepared. So what are the three big ones that they use? Well, the first one is slavery, okay? First one is slavery, okay? Now, the knock on this one, and I, I have a quote from Sam Harris. I think I put it on your paper there. This is what he says. He says, Nothing in Christian theology re remedies the appalling deficiencies of the Bible on what is perhaps the greatest and the easiest moral question our society has ever had to face. So basically what he says is, so, uh, slavery, that's the easiest one, and the Bible gets it wrong. So therefore the Bible must be false. All right? Now, Pastor Dave has spent some time on this, talking about the word doulos and how that works and things like that. But first off, again, the very first thing we ask is, so what if the Bible is, is wrong on this? Right? So what? Why is slavery wrong? Okay. Now, you're not going to say to them, well, you believe in slavery. That's not the point here. The point is, again, we're not letting them off the hook. If they're going to say the Bible got it wrong on slavery, okay, because the Bible actually doesn't get it wrong on slavery, but let's say it does, then we go over here and we say, atheist goes, well, what's wrong? On what grounds? On what grounds is slavery wrong in an atheist evolutionary worldview? And the answer is, I don't like it. That's what it is. They, they, they don't have any foundation for it. Well, fairness, justice, okay? Where do we see fairness in the animal, animal world? Where do we see justice in evolutionary process? Those words are not a, even a single word that you can use when it comes to evolutionary theory. Again, they're judging fizzy pop and what it does to other fizzy pop. Okay? Now, if we left it at that, we haven't answered the problem. Because we still, as Christians, still have to have an account for this. And I think that we can do this. And if you, I'd encourage you to listen to what Pastor Dave had to say. I'll give you a couple of thoughts here. First of all, slavery had existed prior to the Bible. The Bible didn't say, hey, new thing, it's called slavery. Here you go. It doesn't do that. The Bible says, slavery's out there, here's how you do it. And really, the version of slavery that the Bible says slaves treat your, masters treat your slaves this way was really different than the way that a lot of cultures had treated them, even to this day. There's still slavery to this day. I actually read a number that sex slaves in the world, there's actually more sex slaves in the world right now by three times what there ever was in the African slave trade. Okay? Now, it's a totally different thing. It's not involved in the economies of countries, but it's out there. Slavery still exists to this day. 
Uh, and we're not just talking about the Middle East. We're not just talking about Southeast Asia. We're talking about here in America. I-5 corridor, number one sex trafficking area in the United States. Scary stuff. Okay, there's some ministries in downtown Portland that are dealing with that. Slavery has existed, but it's not the slavery of the Civil War time. Okay, it's much more like indentured servitude. It was much more you would enter into it to pay off a debt. Um, there was slavery that was a conquering nation, conquering another nation, but it had nothing to do with racism. Racism, slavery started uh, because uh, they needed a workforce in different parts of the British, British uh, Empire. Okay? Um, and so it's a very different type of slavery than we see to this day. So even if it's not racism, and even if it was around prior to the Bible, why didn't God just say, stop it? Well, one, again, it, it wasn't the same slavery that we saw for the Civil War. It was a totally different kind. But what God did, as with other things that he didn't condone, but he knew they were going to do anyways, he put restrictions on it. Any uh, examples come to mind of Old Testament things that God said, I'd rather you didn't do that, but if you do it, do it this way. Divorce, okay. How about polygamy? Anybody ever heard that knock on the Bible? Well, the Bible says polygamy is bad. And look at all Solomon had, you know, however many hundred thousands of wives he had. Well, he, you know, the Bible said, don't do it, but if you're doing it, do it this way, right? Same thing with slavery, right? The, the, the idea of slavery is really foreign to what Jesus taught, but yet slavery, if you had it, this is the way you do it. So that's another option. The problem is, is that there are lots of people throughout the history of the church who are doing something, they go to God's Word to try to condone it. All right? Remember, if God's Word never contradicts you, you are God, not the God of the Bible. And that's what was happening in the South. These, these religious people, they wanted slaves. They knew that it was something they had to have for, at least in their deluded minds, that they had to have for their economy to stay around. So they proof-texted, pulled out things out of context, and made it say what it wasn't. And again, mistranslated the word slavery. Because I think the word slavery was the wrong word. Okay? Any questions on that? All right. Again, see Pastor Dave. He'll answer all your questions. Next one. The problem of evil. Okay? Why do bad things happen to good people? All right? This one was laid out very early on. And it simply says, if evil exists, God can't exist. Okay? Now, that's an either or but they would actually break it down a little bit, and they would say something like, an all-good God would not allow evil to exist. So, either he can't stop evil, or he won't stop evil. And since neither of those are things that we as Christians are going to say, yeah, that's what we agree to, the God of the Bible must not exist. Now, of all the arguments used by, I guess I had to zoom in here, of all the arguments used by atheists, this is the one that says conclusively there is no God. All right? So if God's all good, evil can't exist. Why? Because if he's all powerful, he would end evil. The Bible says he's all powerful. Okay, so if he's not all powerful, then he must not be all good. And if he's not all good, then he's not the God of the Bible. So therefore, since evil exists, we can't have an all good, all powerful God and all of a sudden, we've got a God that doesn't look anything like the Bible. We don't have a capricious God. We don't have a weak God. We have an all-powerful, all-good God. So that creates a problem, right? 
So again, problem of evil, we ask the question, so what? Okay? So what does, it mean? what does it matter if there is evil? Again, atheists don't let them off the hook if they say, well, God can't exist if there's evil. What is evil? Getting an atheist to admit there is evil is the first step towards destroying their worldview. If you can get them to say something about there being the word evil, because they don't like that word. They'll use it for this argument, but if you say, okay, so I read this news story, and the news always covers bad news, right? I read this news story where this person did this to this young person. Is that good or is that evil? And if they say evil, you go, okay, why? So what? What does that mean? What does the word evil mean? Because if there is evil in the world, we've got them moving towards a Christian worldview. Because in the atheist worldview, there's no such thing as evil. Dog eat dog, look out for yourself, look out for your tribe, it doesn't matter. There is no such thing as evil. But, as Christians, again, we would say, how do we answer this? Well, this is a tough, tough question. I'll walk you guys through what I tell my students. First of all, there's a logical fallacy involved in the argument for evil. Saying that an all-powerful God and an all-good God can't have evil existing is an either-or fallacy. Okay, it's a little bit broadened. It's saying either it's he's all-powerful or he's all-good. Is that the only two traits of God? Are there other traits of God that might play into this? He's what? He's got justice. What else? What are some of those other all words? Omni, we got omnipotent, ugh, power, right? Omniscient, he knows everything. Oh, okay, now we're moving into some territory. If he's omniscient, is there a chance that he might know more than us? Yeah, right? Omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. That means he knows the past and he knows the future. It's all in front of him. How that works, no idea. But I'm going to Google it when I get to heaven, right? How does that work? Well, as soon as we say, well, God's all good and all powerful, and those are his only attributes, we have limited the scope, and we're going to arrive at the conclusion they want, which is evil disproves God. But is there a way that it could be that God has something else in mind? He sees a bigger picture. So here's what I tell my students, and I'll read it to you because I, I, I go right straight through this with them. The underlying problem with most head issues like suffering and evil is I do not see a single good reason for this. And because I cannot see it, a reason does not exist. Right? Because ultimately, this is not just a logical, this is an emotional issue. And usually, it's the person watching the suffering or watching the evil, not the person in it, which is intriguing and there's a whole sermon there. A child who is injured may not understand why we hold them down to fix the injury. Oh man, I tell you what, my daughter broke her arm, and I wasn't here for it, but they uh, didn't know it was broken, and so they tried to pop it back into the joint. Broken arm, yanking on it. Yeah, talk about pain, and she was screaming. I was not here, I was in Salt Lake City grading AP tests. Or a child getting a shot, no, I don't want that shot, but it's going to make you better. I don't care, it's just not okay, right? That's the mindset we get with evil. And I think that that's okay for us to say. We can be not okay with evil. We can cry with those who are suffering. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, uh, when we talk about the problem of evil, there's two kinds of evil. You got the man-made evil, where man doing things to man, and then you got the, what we would say, act of God evil. So like cancer or 
we would talk about both in this. In this situation, we're going to use both. Because they would, an atheist would say, well, why doesn't God just come and zap that person? And, you know, why didn't God just give Adolf Hitler whooping cough when he was three, right? Let him die from that. Why, right? Why not? So it's the same thing as saying, well, why didn't he stop Hurricane Katrina? Okay? So if there is a God big enough for you to be mad at for allowing evil, pain, and suffering, then the God must be big enough as well to have reasons that you cannot understand. So here's the the thought. A brother dies. God comes down and says to me, hey, John, you've been praying. You wanted to know the answer. So I decided to write down the answer for why your brother died. Here you go. But I want to warn you, God says, it's a little complicated. I use a lot of advanced math. There are several dimensions of existence that you don't even know about, and there are people that I will mention that you don't even know exist and are not in existence yet that are affected by this. But here you go. Now, if God came down and did that, what would our response be? Now, right now, where we're sitting, we'd say, well, I'd probably change my mind. But if you're in that moment, what are you going to say? I don't care. He's still dead. I'm hurting. He's still dead, right? And that's exactly where we get with people if this is a genuine concern. For a non-Christian who is not hurting, who is sitting back going, this proves there's no God, you give them the reason. You give them the rational explanation. God knows more than we do. We're going to trust him. But for somebody who's actually hurting, you come alongside them and you weep with them. You cry with those who cry. You weep with those who weep. You mourn with those who mourn. You put your arm around them and say, it's going to get better. There's a plan there. Because ultimately, that's what we have. We have a God who is not off doing his own thing. We have a God who suffered. And he suffered more than any man has ever suffered. And yet, still believed in God. Jesus still believed in God. Jesus did not renounce God when he was going through all that. And he's been there, and he's seen it. So we can introduce them to Christ through this. And it's a great opportunity. Again, like I said, a person who's suffering is usually not the person who is questioning the, the problem of pain. It's usually the person who's watching the person suffering. Okay? So again, emotional issue, be ready to cry with them. And, and you know what? Sometimes it's okay for them to be mad at God. Okay? You're watching someone who's grieving. There's a grieving process that goes on. You don't need to be like, well, it's not affecting you, so you need to... No, if it's affecting them, but maybe not directly. You know, don't just slam them with it. Keep working with them. Relationship with them. Okay? Cry with those who are crying. All right, last one, genocide. Somebody asked me last week um, to talk about this, or two weeks ago, and I wanted to bring it up. So, the God of the Bible commits genocide. All right? I'm just going to say it flat out. Genocide, killing a group of people. Now, the groups that usually get brought up um, are the Canaanites or the Amalekites and things like that, which there's some question whether they were all actually killed because it says, God says, wipe them all out, kill all the women, children, donkeys, goats. And then a few verses later it said, and the Amalekite women were, you're like, I thought God said they were all dead. That's kind of a way to weasel out of it. So let's deal with the bigger one, the flood. God destroyed the earth with the flood. Now, God didn't command that. He just did it, right? He wiped out mankind. Well, what if it wasn't a global flood? Okay, so it was a local flood. Still wiped out a group of people. Not sure how God's never going to allow that to happen again. If it, that, there's a problem there. But either way, 
Group of people, dead. God did it. So what do we say about this? How do we make sense of this? Again, we would go and say, so what? Atheist worldview, who cares? Right? That we're just a bunch of evolved animals. What matters if we all drown? Okay, but now we're going to look at it from a Christian perspective. Let's dig into it. All right? First and foremost, with the atheist worldview, they can't make sense of this. They can't make sense of genocide because ultimately, a bigger nation taking out a smaller nation, who cares? Dog eat dog, survival of the fittest. And ironically, it's usually the Israelites with a smaller nation. So there it kind of flips it on its head right there. But what does the Bible have to say about these genocides? Well, first of all, Romans 9 deals with the problem of suffering and of death and just a whole bunch of stuff. Romans 9 is a solid, solid passage. Okay? And one of the things that Paul says is God made them. They are his. Who cares? Because it's God's. It's all God's stuff. We're all God's stuff. And just like my son, when he sets up his toys and he decides, well, I don't like this toy anymore, breaks it in half, it's his toy. I might get mad because I probably paid for the toy, right? But we all belong to God. The Bible says we are all his clay. So right there, Paul's answer is, well, we don't belong to us, right? And earlier in Romans 1, it said everybody knows there's a God, and since there is that knowledge in every one of us, for us to turn and ignore that God, what did it say? It gave us over into all forms of unrighteousness. So this actually is a judicial judgment, right? It is a judgment on the Amalekites. It's a judgment on the Canaanites. But that's not fair. They're not God's chosen people. Yes, Romans 1, though, says they know there's a God. And through their rebellion, they're not giving into it. And on that matter, you know, it gets even bigger, right? Why does God send people to hell? Before we get to that one, let's go back to the, uh, the whole judging the Canaanites thing. Remember the problem of evil? What did I say about Hitler and whooping cough? Right? Why doesn't God come down here and kill Hitler? Stop his evil before it happens. Okay? He stopped the evil of the Amalekites. You just wanted him to stop the evil of Hitler. Why didn't you want him to stop the evil of the Amalekites? Right? You can't have it both ways. If they make a statement that does not match up with what the statement says it does, it is not true. You can't have it be, God's got to come down here and take out evil people. Okay, he did. Canaanites. That's just not right. Genocide. But you just... Okay, so even worse. Hell, right? They'll throw hell into this one. Kind of mix it in there and say, well, how can God, how can a loving God send people to hell? Right? Well, pretty simple. I threatened Pastor Dave. He might bring criminal charges on me. Probably civil charges, right? Not going to get much, sorry. All right? But if I threaten the governor, it's a little bit different, right? I might go to jail for a little bit. What happens if I even vocally threaten the president? Anybody know how long you go to jail for that? It's a felony. That means it's a minimum of one year in jail to say, I want to kill the president. Just kidding. NSA, you're listening. Okay? To say you want to kill the president is a felony. Not that you actually have a gun or that you're planning it out, but just to say it, you go to jail for a year. Now, keep it nice. What's the difference between President Obama and Pastor Dave? 
What's the difference? $500,000 a year versus, wait, no, it's not right. Authority, right? And position, okay? Barack Obama's our president. You threaten someone of his position, you get a certain punishment. You threaten someone of Pastor Dave's position, you get a certain punishment. You threaten someone just randomly, lower punishment. So now we take God into the equation and we say, okay, you've done a wrong against God. Now you're looking at an, an eternal punishment because of how high God is and how much knowledge you have and so on. So that's another way for you to answer potentially the hell argument. Again, I'm just doing a really cursory glance at this. There's a lot more out there. But again, you don't have to memorize books and books and books and books and books. Just use what they say. Why is genocide not okay if God does it against evil people? Well, it's not fair. Okay, then, so God should just wipe out evil people today, right? Well, no, that's not fair. Well, you can't have it both ways, right? So where do they get their anger from? Where does an atheist get their anger from? They get it from our worldview. See, in an atheist worldview, when we ask that so what question, that's just a nail in the coffin, right? So what? They're killing each other. Animals, they do that, right? Some animals eat their own young, okay? So what? Well, but that's not right, because we're, well, we're what? We're the highest on the evolutionary ladder? That's a weak argument, because the entire evolutionary ladder is full of death and killing each other. So you're going to say, well, we've evolved past that. Who says? How do you know? We do a pretty good job of killing ourselves, right? Humans are pretty good at killing each other and have been for hundreds of, hundreds of years, thousands of years. So where does it come from? Well, here's what they do, just like I talked about last time. They climb up on God's lap and they slap him in the face. And they say, how dare you? Using his guidelines to then judge him. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So, do these contradictions actually exist? No, they don't. Whenever we see them, pursue them. Okay, if some atheist brings something up that we obviously have covered three or four, all right, they bring something up, dig. Because guess what? Our God is not a God of contradictions. All right? And so there is an answer there. Their worldview is based on contradictions. Now, the question that we get at this point is, we've dealt a lot with unbelievers and a little bit with Hinduism. What do, where do, how do we do religion in all this? Because we say, well, we believe in God's Word. Well, the Muslims believe in the Quran. The Mormons believe in the Book of Mormon. The Jews believe in the Old Testament. All right, Hindus believe sort of in the Bhagavad Gita. How do you say that? Buddhists believe in some sacred writings. Aren't they just going to say, I got my book, you got your book, Mexican standoff. Or is there a way for us to make sense of this? And I'd say there is a way for us to make sense of this. So let's talk some comparative religion. So really religions are going to fall into dualism. okay? Because all religions believe for the most part in a spirit and a physical with the exception of like Hinduism. Right? So they kind of are an outlier in religions. But most religions believe in some sort of afterlife, some sort of spirit realm, and some sort of physical realm. Okay? So when we deal with these... There are three types of religions, all right? And we're going to talk about these at length. So the transcendent moralism, Hindus, we've already talked about this. They don't believe in creeds. They don't believe in any sort of moral norms. What they believe is just everything's an illusion, okay? So then you ask them, why do you believe it? 
And they would say, well, well, we, we believe it just like how you believe yours. Well, I believe mine because it's the only rational explanation for everything. Why do you believe yours? And they would say, well, it just makes sense to me. Or it just explains things well. Okay, so explain this. What's the difference between good and evil in an illusory realm? The answer is there is none. If all is one and everything's an illusion, then the bad thing that was just happening to you is not actually bad. It's just an illusion in your head. So get over it. Suck it up. Rub some dirt on it and get out there. Right? That's what they're saying. Something good happens to you. Well, stop rejoicing in that good thing because it's just the same as an evil thing because in Hinduism, all is illusion. And it doesn't matter because guess what? Somebody else is getting your karma that's sort of like you but not you, so live it up. So again, so what? Why would I believe in Hinduism? If all it is telling me is, here's some things that you're going to do that might affect somebody down the road that is sort of you but not you, okay. Their worldview doesn't work. Actually, I'll go back up there for just a second. Buddhism, okay, story of Buddhism, uh, Gautama Siddhartha, young man who was prophesied, he was a rich kid, lived in his dad's compound, his dad had him hidden away, there was a prophecy about him that if he saw four things, he would become enlightened, okay, the word for enlightened is the word Buddha, right, if he saw an old man, a sick man, a dead man, and a monk with a shaved head, if he saw all four of those, he would be enlightened. So, of course, like any teenage boy, what's he do? He sneaks out of his house and sees all four. He then goes into rapture where he is enlightened and he sits and meditates for a certain number of days and then he starts teaching the way of the Buddha called the middle way. Now, interestingly enough, he says while he was meditating, Mara, another word for nothing, comes and tempts him. Buddhists don't believe in gods, but Mara is a person that comes and tempts him. Okay, so how that works, I don't know. He became enlightened, became the Buddha. Lots and lots of suffering out there. So the Buddhist teaches suffering is an illusion. You've got to get yourself, get rid of suffering, a lot like what the Stoics believe. And so get rid of suffering and your life will be great. Okay? And they lay out a way to do it, the Eightfold Path, and a bunch of other things. Now, the problem is, is that what... Buddha taught was you have to experience it to know it. He actually said, guess what guys, don't take my word for it, do it yourself. We'll see right there, again, these guys when they are, and we'll see this even more in a minute when we do Muhammad and Joseph Smith, when they're making their own religion, they can't keep their stories straight. Because as soon as Buddha says, don't take my word for it, believe it yourself, I don't have to listen to him anymore. Because guess what? He just said, what I say doesn't matter. Believe it yourself. Well, I believe Buddhism is this way. I believe it's that way. Who says? So what? Right? Now, they don't believe in supernatural. They don't believe in gods. Eliminate all the whatever. So, it would be interesting to ask someone, why should I be a Buddhist? Well, it's great because it's this. Well, why should I take your word for it? Well, Buddha says, then you go, oh, oh wait a second. Buddha says I shouldn't trust Buddha. So who should I trust? Well, trust Zen master so-and-so. Well, who does he follow? Buddha. Well, I don't trust Buddha because Buddha said not to trust Buddha. And as soon as you don't trust Buddha, you can do whatever you want, right? And so as soon as you have that loophole in there, it creates a serious problem. Because if I don't have to trust the Buddha... So 
get what they're saying here. What they're saying is, when you ask and say, why should I experience Buddhism? They say, because. The only way to know Buddhism is to experience it. But my reason I'm asking you is, why should I experience it? You can't give me a reason because your Grandmaster Buddha said, don't believe anybody who tells you about Buddhism. So how can I know anything about Buddhism? Well, the only way is to experience it. Okay? But that's not a reason why I should do it. Because what if my experience is different than yours? What if your experience is different than Buddha's? What if, and it, before you know it, your mind starts to explode. Because what does Buddhism do? Here's all the teachings of the Buddha. Follow the Buddha. But the Buddha says, don't follow the Buddha. Problem, right? Remember, arbitrary, contradiction, and can they know anything about reality? All right? So let's talk about Christian counterfeits. This is when it gets fun. There are three types of Christian counterfeits. Unitarian, polytheistic, and pseudo-messianic. Now the pseudo-messianic one has fallen on hard times lately, so we're not going to spend a ton of time on that. But this is where you came for Unitarian and polytheistic. So, what is the major... Unitarian means one, oneness of God. What are the, what's a major religion involving the oneness of God? Islam, okay? There's another one. There's one that pretends to be a little more Christian. Mm, sort of, yes. They would line up there. What's the other one? The Judas don't really pretend to be Christian, so that doesn't work, but that is the right answer, though. Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe Jesus was God. They actually believe he was an angel, and then he came down as Jesus, and then he turned into a different angel. Don't know. Okay? So let's talk about a Unitarian religion. The one we're going to deal with is Islam. So here's the story of Islam. First of all, the word Islam uh, means submission. Muslim means one who submits. Okay? So this is a very devout religion. Right? Obviously in the news quite a bit. It seems like we go a couple days uh, without a terrorist attack. We can go, yay. Um, there's been thousands and thousands with ISIS and some other stuff going on. So basically, they believe in a, a single God. I'll, I'll walk you through some of it. They believe that the Trinity is idolatry. It all started with Muhammad in about 570 A.D. Muhammad lives in the city of Mecca. And like any smart man, he married up. Can I get an amen? All right. 15-year-old hooks up with a sugar mama. She is a rich widow who has lots and lots of money, so much so that Muhammad does not have to work a day of his life, and he becomes a stay-at-home guy with no kids. He then begins having some sort of demonizing, terrorizing something. Okay? Um, some actual uh, Islamic teachers believe he had a form of epilepsy the way that his, his things are called. So he goes into an epileptic seizure. At first, he believes he's being attacked by a jinn. Anybody know what a jinn is? It's a genie, okay? Uh, or a demon. That's what the Arabs believed was uh, the, the bad angels. You see, Mecca was like any port town. Now, you're like, Mecca, I know my geography. It's in the middle of the desert. It's a desert port. Okay? It's an oasis out in the middle of nowhere where the, tr the, the caravans would come and stop because the Red Sea was full of pirates. Still is, kind of. Okay? And so instead of going by sea up the Red Sea, they would actually go by caravan up the middle of the Arabian Peninsula and they would stop in Mecca. So Mecca was, like any other port town, every single religion, every single debauchery thing in that port. And 
this is going to inform a lot on what Muhammad does. So Muhammad begins having these, these visions. His, he thinks it's a demon. His wife says, oh, it's probably not. Why don't you listen to it? So he begins listening. He believes the angel Gabriel came to him, and he begins uttering things. And he gets some followers who start writing things down. One of the very first things he writes down is, there are no gods except for Allah. And he is the one true God. Now, Allah was worshipped in Mecca. He was known as the God of the, what planet? The moon. Okay? Muslims, symbol of the moon and the star. That's because that was the symbol of Allah in Mecca. And, jo and uh, Joseph Smith, oops. Uh, Muhammad said, kick all the religions out. There's only one true religion. Now, you can imagine what happens in Mecca. They're making some serious coin off of all these religions. So Muhammad's going, hey, these religions are false. They go, we've got to get rid of this guy. So a bunch of the rich landowners hire some assassins to kill him. Well, he gets away. He flees to a place called Medina, which is like Estacada. Okay, it's outside of town. It's up in the mountains, right? And uh, it's kind of away from the beaten track. And no offense to Estacadans, right? All right. Out in, out in the middle of nowhere, he begins creating an army. And they would literally swoop down from the mountains, attack caravan trains, kill all the men, take all the kids and the women, and they would see their numbers grow. This was evangelism by the sword. Islam has always been a very violent, aggressive religion, except for in America, where people will defend it and say it's been peaceful. They need to read their history books, which is something we all should do. Right, Pastor Matt? That's right. Okay, so Muhammad goes up there. Uh, eventually, he gets a big enough army, he swoops down into Mecca, sacks Mecca, turns it into his, his hub, continues to write down all of these visions, and then he dies. Okay? There's some power struggles after he dies, and then Islam begins getting powerful and powerful. Eventually, thanks, uh, well, they conquer the Holy Land, they conquer all of northern Africa, and thanks to Charles Martel, they are... That's why we all speak English instead of Arabic. Charles Martel, Charles, Charlemagne, Charles the Great. He actually stops the Muslim invasion um, and makes it so that Europe actually did not get fully conquered by the Muslims. So that's the kind of how, where Islam came from. What do they believe in? Well, they believe in the Quran. Um, they believe that the Quran is the most important book. It's superior to all others. Okay? Um, they're very fatalistic. You're not necessarily guaranteed to go to heaven in Islam uh, unless you do one thing, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. The, the Quran, you see it spelled a couple different ways. Um, it is written down not in chronological order. It is uh, largest to smallest or smallest to largest. I forget which order it goes in, but it's written down in chapters, and they're just kind of all put together. Um, some things that Muslims will say in response to Christians is they'll say, you can go anywhere in the world and the Quran's the same. There's no different translations. There's no manuscript issues and things like that. And the reason for that is because about 150 years after Muhammad died, the Muslims said, hey, everybody bring all your translations in, and if you don't, we're going to kill you. And they burned them all, except for one. And then they made copies of that one. And so the Muslims will say, well, see, our book is perfect. Well, it's perfect because you destroyed all the other ones. Because we're all sorts of different groups inside of Islam. Even to this day, there are several different groups. The Shiites and the Sunnis are some of the more popular ones. Uh, one believes that the, uh, the ruler of the, the, the religion of Islam should be elected. The other one believes he should be a descendant of Muhammad. 
And so that's kind of the breakdown. And we saw that in Iraq, and we still see that a little bit with ISIS. ISIS is killing a lot of Muslims along with lots and lots of Christians in Syria and things like that. All right, so the five doctrines. Allah is the one true God. Okay? The basics here is you have to pronounce this. You have to say, uh, Allah, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. That's their creed. No larger catechism, no apostles' creed. It's, you know, like eight words. And if you say that, you officially become a Muslim. It's best to say it in Arabic, because Arabic is the perfect language according to Islam. So if you ever talk to a Muslim and, and you're talking to them about reading the Quran, you say, I read the Quran. They say, well, did you read it in Arabic? And you go, no. And they say, well, you didn't really read it. You just read an English version. It's not as good. Okay. I'm going to have to go home and do some homework then to get that done. So the first one is Allah is the one true God. The second one is Muhammad is the best and last prophet. Okay. So how Muhammad dealt with his, his revelation is he believed that the Bible was not, the canon of the Bible was not closed, okay? What that means is we've got the 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, and let's say tomorrow we found 3 Corinthians. And actually there's two. There's 3rd and 4th Corinthians. All right, we find both of those. Would we add them to our Bible? Well, technically, probably yes. The problem is, is that how are we going to get all of the Christian groups to agree to it? Would we be able to prove its authenticity? So there's some issue there. So Muhammad said, hey, guess what? I have some more revelation. Let me add it to the Bible. And as a matter of fact, in the Bible, I'm sorry, in the Quran, he says, Jews and Christians, yay, like them. Why? Because there were more Jews and Christians in Mecca than there were any other groups. And so he was trying to win them over. This is going to come back to bite him in the end because now we have something to compare the Quran to, which is the Old and the New Testament. All right? So... Muhammad's a prophet, so was David, so was Moses, so was Jesus, all the way down the line, but Muhammad's the greatest. That's their second doctrine. Third doctrine, the Quran is the fourth inspired book. You're like, wait, four? Yes, we got the Pentateuch, okay, that's Moses' books, the first five books of the Old Testament. We got the Psalms of David, and then we've got the Injil, which means New Testament. So the Quran actually says that those are inspired books of God, and we should read them. When I was in uh, North Africa, I was there for about 16 weeks, uh, working in actually Southern Europe, North Africa, Spain, Morocco. We were reaching out to Muslims and trying to get them to take copies of the Bible. And we learned how to, in Arabic, say, it's the Bible, you should read it. Um, and some of them would go, no, 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 I don't want that. Others of them would take it. There was a whole bunch of interesting stories that came from that. But we had a few ex-Muslim brothers there who would come in and they would argue with the Muslims and say, no, the Bible is good. Muhammad said, and they would quote the, quote the Quran to them to say, you should read this. And some of them would take them and some of them wouldn't. Um, it was a very interesting thing. So they believe in those four books. And this is where we're going to camp when it comes to our apologetic to deal with Muslims. Because if the Bible is true and the Quran's an add-on, then the Quran and the Bible should match up because God's not a God of contradiction. All right? So that's the, the third one. The fourth one, they believe in angels and demons. Not the Dan Brown novel, but actual angels and demons. And then finally, they believe in the final day of judgment. They believe in heaven and hell, and you get there based on what you do. Now, heaven is a little interesting for the Muslim. It's a very sensual place. And if you're a guy, it's geared towards you. Okay, heaven's basically Allah's man cave. All right? It's very, very sensual. It's very, very, like, 
sexual, let's just flat out say it, ladies, your job in heaven is going to be making men happy in all sorts of ways. And that's how the Muslims describe heaven. That's Allah's heaven. And it does not sound like a place that sounds exciting for women at all. All right? Um, so that's how they describe it. Now, there is a sixth doctrine, which is not an official doctrine, but it's something that Muslims believe in. It's called kismet. Anybody ever heard that word before? Kismet. This means fate. The Muslims believe that Allah controls everything. I had a student of mine who was over in Afghanistan, and he was telling me how in Afghanistan, they just throw trash outside. They just don't care. It's like, oh, they have a river right through Kabul where he was, and it's, he said it's the filthiest thing you've ever seen. It's just people will go by and drop trash off. And I, I, he said, most people would go, well, why are they doing that? They're ruining the water. And they say, ashallah, or something along those lines, which means if Allah rules it, he'd make that clean. So it's very fatalistic. It's very much, well, if Allah really was, had a problem with it, he would clean it. But if Allah didn't want me to steal this, he would stop me. If Allah didn't want me to kill you, he would stop me. So you see, it's very much, there's no free will. Allah is in charge, and he controls all of it, which is going to also cause them a problem in a minute. They have five pillars. These are probably ones you're familiar with. The first one is what's called the shahada, which is that pronouncement of faith. Okay? There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. The second one's called the hajj. And this is a required trip to Mecca. Right? If you are all, at all able, you should go to Mecca once in your life so that you can walk around the Kaaba and throw rocks at the pillar of Satan and do a bunch of other rituals to make things right with you and Allah. Okay? So again, remember, this is a works religion. It's all about doing, doing, doing to get Allah to like you. But Allah already knows what you're going to do, so it, it, it blows your mind a little bit, but it's there. The third one is alms, and this is a required 5% alms to the poor and the needy and widows. Okay, so this would be a, a mandatory thing. And if you had a, uh, an imam, uh, a religious leader in Islam, he would make sure that you were doing that on a regular basis. All right? The fourth one is Ramadan. Ramadan is a 40-day fast. Now, fasting in Islam is a little different. The 40-day fast is only during daylight hours, and it's only for food and sex. Until the sun goes down, then you can gorge yourself and you can do whatever. And then at the end of Ramadan, they throw a big, huge three or four day party, which nowadays means terrorist attacks. But back in the day, it was more of a, just a big party. I'm serious. In, in America, we elevate our alerts in America after Ramadan, because that's when the most terrorist attacks happen. And then the final one is prayer. They pray towards Mecca, and they do that five times a day. And that's a very important thing. Even in Guantanamo Bay, the Muslim prisoners there had an arrow pointing towards Mecca in their cell, even if they didn't have a window, so that that way they could pray towards Mecca. Because you don't want to get a God that can send you to hell because he's in a bad mood. Because Allah is ultimately very capricious. He can just do whatever he wants. But there is a loophole, and this is the sixth pillar, even though it's not official. Anybody know what that pillar is? Jihad. Holy war. In Muslims theology, if you die while defending Islam or killing a heretic or killing someone who left Islam or who said something bad about Islam, do not pass go. Go straight to heaven and get your 72 virgins. Okay? That is the only guaranteed way to go to heaven. And the sad part is, if you heard about the turkey bombing last week, 
They got a 12-year-old kid to buy into that. Blew himself up to kill people to go straight to heaven. Now, I heard a funny joke. I heard uh, they found a new version of the Quran, and it was a mistranslation. And it was not 72 Virginia. It was virgins. It was 72 Virginians. And they were pretty ticked off about what happened on 9-11. So I thought that was kind of an interesting little spin on it. Maybe not so funny. All right. So there we go. Questions on Islam. Now, how do we deal with these guys? How do we make sense of Islam? All right. Well, first, we've got to take a little side note. The Bible is very clear that whenever anyone comes up with anything that is a new revelation, we are to test the prophets. We are to test what they believe. And there's lots of verses. I just chose the two that are the most explicit. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises amongst you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder he tells you comes to pass. So this is a prophet that says, tomorrow it's going to rain, and it rains. Okay, all right, I'm listening. And then he says, let's go after other gods that you have not known. Let's go serve them. Do not listen to him. The Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Later in Deuteronomy 18, it says, put them to death. Don't fear them. Even if they do miracles, don't follow them. 1 John 4, 1 through 3 says, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Therefore, there's the spirit of Antichrist. Even in Galatians, it talks about if an angel comes and preaches something different to you. Hmm, that sounds like Islam. Um, comes and preaches something different to you, then don't believe it. So, our apologetic with a Muslim is going to be, you say the Bible is God's word. Let's see how the Bible compares to what the Quran says. Okay, so we're going to use their own words and go to them. So the basic thing we see is that the Bible contradicts the Quran. Pretty self-explanatory. Even more so than that, because what the, what the Muslim will do is the Muslim will say, well, your Bibles are corrupted, only the Quran is true. Okay, so let's put the Bible aside for a second. We're not going on their territory. We're just, remember, we're doing the internal critique, and we say, what does the Quran say? Does the Quran, is the Quran consistent? And we'll find out it's actually not. So here are some contradictions from the Bible. Jesus did not die on the cross. Why? Because he's a prophet. Prophets don't get put to death. Might need to read the Old Testament because I'm thinking there's a few prophets that got put to death in the Old Testament. But Muhammad said no. Judas was actually replaced with Jesus. Right? So Judas was killed on the cross. Jesus, Jesus was taken away. He never died until he died of old age. Here's one that's a little more embarrassing. The mother of Jesus was the sister of Moses. Okay, well, she was either really old or there's a mistake here. Now, what was the mother of Moses' name? Miriam, right? This was a old culture. Miriam, Mary, they kind of sound the same in Arabic. Muhammad got it wrong. This, to this day, is a big mistake in the Quran. Jesus is not the Son of God. Because God cannot have babies. They believe that the only way God could have children would be to have sex. And God's not physical. He is spirit. So therefore, there cannot be Jesus. Christians are polytheists, which we're not. We believe in three gods in one God. Three who's in one what. That's my Dr. Seuss version of the Trinity. Okay? Moses, David, Jesus, Muhammad, they all contradict. So Muslims will say, the Bible's been perverted. Now the cool thing about it is that our Bibles 
are so ridiculously accurate. To this day, you can go and look online or in person at manuscripts, those are the original versions, of only a few decades after the New Testament was written, right? We have a little fragments of some of the books written by Paul and John and even a couple pieces of Mark that are within a decade of when they were written. So we can check them. And in, within less than 100 years, we have thousands, over 5,000 manuscript evidences, manuscripts of the Bible in existence. And guess how many of them line up with the Quran? Zero. So they say the Bible has been perverted. You've pulled parts out of it. So we say, okay, well, you're basically saying is that the Quran, the last one written, is the only way to understand the ones previously written. A little chronological snobbery there, right? Okay, so let's look at the Quran. Because if the Quran contradicts itself, it can't be true. Here's what the Quran says. It says that Noah's family all survives the flood. Surah number 21. That's chapter in Arabic. And then it says all of Noah's family survived except for two of his, or one of his sons. So you can't have it both ways, right? You can't have it. They all live, all but one live. All right? Okay, so maybe, how about this one? Pharaoh drowns in the Red Sea. Pharaoh dies of old age, both in the Quran. Okay? Now, they might find ways to wiggle out of that, but let's get even farther. Every single chapter or surah starts with Allah the gracious or Allah the loving. Here's a problem. How many, how many uh, personalities, how many characters uh, are in God, uh, in Allah? None, right? It's one. So prior to Allah making anything, how could he be loving? How could he be gracious? Those are words that require a second or an other. So in Muslim theology, Allah is one, but he's always been loving, but he couldn't be loving until he made us. So you see the problem there. See, with the Trinity, we don't have that problem, do we? Our God is the God of love and has been for all time. He's never changed. Why? Because the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Father, and they're constantly giving love to each other. So the three who's in one what? The three persons in one being constantly loving each other. They love each other so much that they would love to make other things that can experience that love. So that's us. Muslims were made so that they could feel Allah's love because Allah was lacking prior to the creation of Muslims. Right? Here's the last one. I love this one. This one will really blow your mind. Muhammad writes that Allah is so transcendent, meaning above everything, that nothing in human language or experience can explain him or describe him at all. Okay, so let's, think, let's let that sink in. No language or experience can describe him at all. Well, can't use him. Yeah, there goes the Quran, right? Because what is it? It's a description of Allah using language. Okay? Well, well, Allah, he would be, well, I can't say he because he is a human expression of male and female. And then it is actually a word. And since language can't describe Allah, I can't describe him. So here's the problem. If the Quran is what it says it is, it can't be what it says it is. Right? The Quran cannot be what it says it is if it, says, if it is what it says it is, right? I heard of, there's an old, if you ever had philosophy class, you probably heard this, the Barber of Seville, okay? Every single man in his town is clean-shaven. 
And they have done it one of two ways. Shave himself or by going to the barber. So the barber, how does the barber get clean shaven? Because either he shaves himself, which he can't do, or he has to shave other. It, 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 right? It's too late for on Sunday night to go through that one. Anyway, Quran cannot be what it is if it is what it is. Right? It says there's no way to explain God, but yet it's trying to explain God, so therefore it can't explain God. Very basic, very simple. Let's move on. All right, polytheism. Okay, Mormons. All right, let's get into Mormons. Now, first of all, Joseph Smith was a con man. Okay? This is a very sensitive thing that Mormons know. Okay? Bainbridge, New York, county records show that he was what's called a glass looker. He would look into a bag with a piece of a rock that was clear-ish, and he would say that he could see water or buried treasure, and people would pay him money, and then they would dig, and he would be gone. Okay? He was tried and convicted in a court of law in New York. This is very, very sensitive for Mormons. Now, I'm not going to use this as an ad hominem or to poke fun at Joseph Smith, but it is his character prior to this event that happens. Okay? And you can take it how you will. But I wouldn't just use this for Mormons. Go, well, your guy lied about other stuff, so he can't. Because we know there are some Christian guys who weren't so great, and then God came into their lives, and even though sometimes they're still not so great, God still uses them. All right? But be wary, because a con man just figured out a new way to con, maybe. All right, he was born in 1805. His family joined the Presbyterian Church. He didn't. He was confused that there were so many denominations. He goes, well, there's one God. Why are there so many denominations? Okay, so he went in the woods to pray at age 14. Two personages appeared, Jesus and God. God says, this is my son. Listen to him. Okay, so right there we've got an issue because, you know, how can he see God? Because God says he, nobody could see him. Jesus tells him that there are no true churches and all the creeds are an abomination. Okay? So, he waits a few more years. He has a vision of an angel named Moroni. Moroni is the one where we get the name Mormon from. Their official name is Latter-day Saints, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or LDS for short. Moroni says that Joseph Smith's name will be for good and evil for all generations and that there is a book written the continuation of the Bible. See a trend here, right? Satan has no new tricks. Trend for Mormons. Now the Mormons, there's a book written on gold plates, hidden that has the everlasting gospel about how Jesus preached to the Indians in North America. Because guess what? The Indians are actually descendants of uh, Israel. They're the lost tribes of Israel. Which ironically, if you want an interesting book, DNA and the Book of Mormon, written by an ex-Mormon who compared DNA of Jews and Native Americans, and there are nothing in common, except for the fact they have human DNA. Other than that, there's nothing in common. He left the faith, and it got excommunicated, and so on. It's golden uh, plates, everlasting gospel, stone box. He's not allowed to take them, but he has to go back four years in a row to the same spot. Finally, he's allowed to take them for safekeeping. Um, at this point, he had eloped with a woman named Hale, Mary Hale, returns to her father-in-law's house and begins writing down what the plates say using his glass, look, that looking glass that he had. A rich man named, well, a rich farmer, wealthy farmer, not rich by any means, named Martin Harris comes along and he says, I'd like to, I'd like to publish your book, the Book of Mormon, but I want to make sure that my investment isn't for naught. 
So I'd like to have you write down some of the stuff that you see, and I'll take it and have it checked. So he takes it into New York to a guy named Charles Anton, who is a linguistic expert. And Charles Anton says, oh, wow, these are some interesting characters you got here. I see Egyptian, Chaldaic, Assyrian, Arabic. And that's enough for Martin Harris. Martin Harris goes, I'm sold. Let's do it. Okay, now it wasn't a translation. It was just writing out characters. Right? Very vastly different uh, characters, by the way. Egyptian hieroglyphics, we actually couldn't translate until the Rosetta Stone was found during the Napoleon Wars. But Joseph Smith could. So Oliver Cowdery comes along in 1829. He becomes an amanuensis, which means he writes down what Joseph Smith says. Joseph Smith would go into one side of the room, pull a black curtain, look into his, um, his black bag, read out the words, and uh, Cowdery would write them down, and then eventually they published them. 1830, March 26, 1830, the Book of Mormon goes on sale. The church is officially organized. Now, during that time leading up to it, Cowdery, Harris, and Smith are walking in the forest, and Aaron shows up. I'm sorry, John the Baptist shows up and gives them the priesthood of Aaron. And then a few days later, Peter, James, and John show up and give them the Melchizedek priesthood. So now not only is Joseph Smith the ultimate translator, but now he's a priest and a priest, double priest, right? Even though Melchizedek priesthood was only for Jesus, okay? But that doesn't matter, he got it. So now they start the Mormon church. Starts with six members, grows to 30, becomes very popular in the New York area. Joseph Smith writes the Doctrines and Covenants. He also takes the King James Bible and revises it based on an inspiration. He then gets a revelation from God that Jackson County is the land of promise that the city of Zion will eternally exist in Independence, Missouri. Independence, Missouri doesn't like that. So they organize a militia to kick him out. And Joseph Smith follows with a new revelation that West, far West Missouri is the place that the Mormons will live forever until they get kicked out of there. And they settle in Illinois in a place called Nauvoo in 1839. Now, at this point, the Mormon church is not growing anymore other than having babies. Um, there is quite a bit of bad press, so much so that Joseph Smith organized what's called the Nauvoo Legion, which sounds really imposing, but it was about 15 guys to go and destroy a printing press that was printing negative stuff about the Book of Mormon. Basically that it was all a scam, Joseph Smith was just making money, people were leaving the faith. They went and did that, and then a, uh, the police came and arrested Smith. He was released, he was re-arrested on his way back to jail, he was murdered along with several other members of the church. Now the church has a martyr, and they always like a martyr. So then the Mormons pack up from Illinois and move to the middle of nowhere to a place that they wanted to name the State of Deseret, Ever seen a Deseret Industries thrift store like on 82nd? That's a Mormon thrift store, okay? Um, eventually, they came in as the state of Utah, digging out a hard-fought place to live known as Salt Lake City. So, that's the basics of how we got this. Now, I think if Joseph Smith had survived, I think the religion would have died out because eventually he would have kept saying things that didn't make sense. We would have had translations of the hieroglyphics and different things like that. So ultimately, what we need to ask with Mormons is, what is their source of um, authority? They believe that um, the Book of Mormon is the ultimate source. From the Mormon website, looked at last night, 
We believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is correctly translated. We also believe the Book of Mormon is the Word of God. So now, interesting. They say the Bible is only true when we translate. Not where translate's wrong, it should be interpret. But Joseph Smith said translate, so they're going to say translate. They interpret the Bible. The Book of Mormon is perfect. It has nothing wrong with it, even though there's had 4,000 changes, typos, and things like that. Translation by Joseph Smith. Okay? He's the one that saw the Book of Mormon. He's the only one that saw it. He's the only one that translated it. And it was taken back up to heaven when he was done with it. So there's no way to check his work. Unlike our Bible, which you can go and look at the manuscripts all the way back to whenever. Their translation is not. Now, Joseph Smith, when he reworked the Bible, he said, oh man, this Bible has been perverted. Sound familiar? Sounds like what the Muslims would say. The Bible's been perverted. It's been, things have been taken out. So he added them back in. Here's what he added back in. Genesis 3. Satan says, I'll redeem mankind. Let me do it. Me, me, me. Why? Because Jesus is going to redeem mankind. But Satan, being the brother of Jesus, wanted to do it first. God gave preference to Jesus. Okay? Number two. Genesis 6. Adam is baptized by immersion in water. So get that. Mormons believe in baptism, especially baptism for the dead, which is a whole other story. Okay? They believe that baptism had been around since the Garden of Eden, right after the Garden of Eden. But somehow, throughout all of history of the church, baptism wasn't around until John the Baptist showed up. Okay? It had been taken out. Genesis uh, also contains a prophecy by Enoch. It says that sex came about because of the fall. Okay, the reason why we have to have sex and we have to have babies is because the fall happened. Sex didn't exist and sexual pleasure didn't exist. It's actually a part of the fall. And then finally, most glaring of all, Genesis 50, Joseph Smith adds a prophecy about this guy and his name is Joseph Smith. I'm not making that up. So the Book of Mormon and the King James Joseph Smith translation, which he also removes a few things about Jesus being God um, as he goes through. So somebody really messed up, right? Joseph Smith's prophecy was taken out by some mean person. Baptism was left out. All sorts of issues. So again, we have the same thing we have with the Quran, which is the Bible has been messed up, so we're going to take the more recent one to explain the ones that came before. So if we do that, again, we need to Look at their book and say, how does it match up? Well, first of all, we know the Book of Mormon and the Bible don't match up. Deuteronomy told us that, okay? God does not change. The Mormons teach that if you are a good Mormon and you do all the right things and do all the right things after you die and you have the right kind of marriage, you can enter into the highest level of heaven and become a god of your own planet. So, right back to what we see, as man now is, God once was, as God now is, man may be. So God changes. The God that is over us Elohim at one point was not a god. So if Elohim was not a god, then that means that the laws of logic are only dictated by Elohim for this planet. So guess what? We can go to a different planet and do different things. Right? So you see there's a problem right there with how do we get logic? Where does that come from? Is there some kind of right and wrong or is it just God changed his mind? God became a god. So at some point there was no god. And then you have what's called an infinite regression, which is if 
This God was a man who was a child of a God from before and a God and a God and a God and a God. At some point, you've got to get back to the first God, right? Or you can just say what the Mormons say and say it's infinite. Well, the problem with that is infinite's not a real number. It's only a mathematical uh, theory, okay? You can't actually have an infinite number. You have to get to a starting point at some point. Or we wouldn't get to an end point, which is right now, which is more math than I want to do with. Okay? Um, Bible's been corrupted. Now, let's, let's use their book against itself. And that, like your little thing that I gave you guys, there's some examples in there. But let's do one really quick because we're running out of time. Book of Mormon, chapter 9, verse 34, says, No one knows the language of the Book of Mormon, but only through a special miracle is it translated. Now, if you were listening a minute ago, who did Martin Harris take it to? He took it to Charles Anton, who said it was what? It was Egyptian, Chaldaic, Assyrian. It was a, a, a language called Reformed Egyptian. Well, Joseph Smith can't keep his story straight. Because in chapter 9 of the Book of Mormon, he says, it's in a heavenly language. He even goes on to say, it would have been better if God had used Hebrew, because Hebrew is a more perfect language. But the plates weren't big enough for God to write Hebrew on it. What? I'm not kidding you. Nine, chapter 9, verse 33. The plates were not big enough. So, not only do we have the fact that there are no plates ever recorded in history to have had any part of the Bible being written on, even though the Book of Mormon says they were, not only do we have the physics of the matter to have the entire Book of Mormon written on gold plates, they would have weighed nearly a ton and a half, okay? Because the Book of Mormon is a rather thick book, and if it's written as big as Joseph Smith says it was, it would have needed to be a book about that big, right? Not like the little nice one that they have in the Visitor's Temple, Visitor's Center at the Temple in Salt Lake, where you can... Oh, wow, that's cool, right? doesn't work that way. So this is an easy apologetic for us. The Bible says one thing. The Book of Mormon says something else. The Book of Mormon itself cannot keep its story straight. It is constantly contradicting itself. Again, the fact of the matter, when it comes right down to it, how does a Mormon know the Book of Mormon is true? They base it on Joseph Smith is trustworthy. A con man who made up a story, who then eventually started making holes in his own story, who died, is who we should put our trust in. Now, if you've never known a Mormon, Mormons actually do have what they call an experience of the Book of Mormon called the burning in the bosom, which I believe probably has some sort of spiritual, maybe demonic something with it, where a Mormon will say, read the Book of Mormon, and then ask God to tell you whether it's true or not. And the Mormons base it on that. But another thing Mormons base their, their belief on is the fact that Mormonism, the first thing they do, they get you hooked up with someone of the opposite sex. And they get you married. And then they get you plugged into all their groups. And so now, just like with Muslims, to leave your faith, you're leaving your life. I met a Muslim guy in Morocco who, when he became a Christian, his entire family disowned him and his dad put a mark on him. Which means, if he sees him again, he's going to kill him. Talk about dedication to following Christ. I have a friend of mine who was a, used to be a Mormon. He had a nice little family, nice little house, a uh, couple kids, and his co-worker led him to Christ. His wife divorced him, tried to get custody of the kids, and has been a constant problem ever since. She got remarried, because girls, in Mormonism, you've got to be married or you don't get to go to heaven. And even then, only if the guy really likes you does he bring you into heaven, because, you know, for heaven, for you, you're going to be pregnant and barefoot for the rest of your life, because you've got to propagate your planet. Anybody want to join Islam or Mormonism right now? 
There's a table over. No, I'm just kidding. All right. So what it comes down to is, are we going to trust Joseph Smith? Are we going to trust Muhammad? They don't even. Their 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 stories are all convoluted, and there's lots of them. Mistakes in the Quran. Mistakes in the Book of Mormon. All right. It's the pseudo messianic. Um, basically, these you know back in the day there were the Moonies. Anybody remember the Moonies? Sun Young Moon said he was the third Christ. David Koresh. Um, these have kind of fallen out of favor, though he's not as popular anymore. Um, but this is the idea. Someone comes along and says, I'm Jesus. Right? Same principles here. Take their words, compare it to God's word, and if it doesn't match up, they're a false prophet, kick them out. Okay? Uh, let them keep talking. They'll eventually contradict themselves. So, that's kind of the basics of it. All right? Remember our no neutral ground, all evidence is interpreted, worldviews are everywhere, don't answer, answer. So, wrapping up, and then I'll take questions if you guys have any. First thing we know is that there's no atheists. There's no such thing as an atheist. The Bible says everybody knows there's a God, and it's only because of our rebellion that we don't acknowledge that. We want to do what we want to do. Like Aldous Huxley said, the reason I'm an atheist is because if I'm a Christian, I can't have sex with all the women that I want, so therefore I'm going to be an atheist because I want to have sex. He was very plain about it. I'm not saying that's all atheists. I'm just saying an atheist wants to be their own God. They want to do their own thing. They, they don't want to acknowledge the God of the universe. So first thing we do is we do not give up our worldview. We stand on Christianity. And we have to recognize any time they make a value statement, moral, ethical, anything, they are borrowing from Christianity, like we've talked about. They're trying to stand on a worldview that has nothing to stand on, so they have to come to Christianity to borrow from it to say fair, just, moral, right, wrong. They can't do it. They can't even explain where logic comes from. So when we do this, we enter into their worldview to show how inconsistent it is. And we show arbitrary. Well, why do you believe that? Well, I just believe it. That's not a reason. Inconsistency. Well, I believe only matter, but logic's not matter, okay? And then finally, can you explain why we can understand anything? And the answer is, they can't. If it's chance acting on matter, then there's no way to know that tomorrow will be like today or that the past ever happened, but we can. And we live that way. When defending Christianity, don't let them off the hook. Okay, and I hope I, hopefully I modeled that for you guys a little bit. When an atheist says, well, what about the problem of evil? You say, so what? Who cares? That, what, what does it matter? It's two, two liter bottles of pop fizzing. Who cares? Right? We're pond scum. We're bipedal protoplasm acting on each other. Who cares? So don't let them off the hook. Every time they ask you to defend your faith, be ready. Give them an answer. Find good books that have explaining why do we believe Jesus died and rose again. What we do with the problem of evil. How do we know there's a God? You can use those but don't go to those first. Go to their worldview and constantly bring it back to the point of you can't account for reason, you can't account for anything, so what? How do you know? Where are you getting it from? And you'll see what I've seen in countless apologetic interactions, which is they just don't have anything to stand on. The only way they can get up and say something bad about God is to first become a Christian worldview believer standing on it before they can do it. And that's the answer to it. All right. Any questions that I can answer? Uh, we're a little past time, but anything I can answer? Any questions? Anything? 
let's do this. Let me pray, and then I'll dismiss you guys, and then I'll be over here if you want to ask me about any of those books or anything like that. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for being a God of logic and consistency, and a God that loves us and cares for us, Lord. Lord, I just pray for all the lost souls that we come in contact with daily here in Portland and in Clackamas and wherever else we go, Lord. I pray that we would be a light to them, Lord, and, and just being able to, to share with them your love and show them that you exist, Lord. I pray that we would be able to do that and do it well. And if anything we've talked about here will help with that, Lord, I just give you all the praise for that. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity, and thank you for each and every one of these people here in your name. Amen.